0: Please subscribe for Designers of Paradise at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm speaking today with Bruce Kania from Montana. And Bruce runs a company called Floating Islands International which we will start to talk about in just a second. Um, I have to say, Bruce, I'm super, super, super excited to be exploring what you're doing with you today because this is something uh, the, the, the the use of uh, these floating islands, which we're about to get into, um, and their capacity to clean water is something that has come up on my own radar a number of times over the years. Uh, different Different companies or different designers uh, working with some variation on that, but for some reason they've been clustering. It's like the last the last month I've come across four or five different mentions of applications of this kind of thinking to some of our problems. So I'm really really happy that that um, I found you and that you've agreed to talk with us today. And welcome.
1: Well, thank you, uh, Eric. I'm I'm a, and like you, I'm really enthusiastic about. <clears throat> the, um, the messaging and, and telling people about you know what the potential is around uh, naturally, chemically free, uh, the chemical free process of cleaning up water. Uh, the, the idea of nature as model, where we learn from nature and we let nature guide us towards the potential of water. Uh, I'm, I'm extremely excited, more excited now than when we launched this effort
0: back in 2005. So the more you learn, the more experience uh, you have, the more it emphasizes or reinforces for you. Is that right?
1: You know, there's a phenomenon. uh, It's like an upward spiral when you're around the waterway and it's slipping down and only getting worse. But then when you target that waterway and you think about it and you empathize with it um, and you ultimately provide it what's missing, usually. Nature's wetland effect, that blend of surface area and circulation that when we do that, we, it ultimately results in the water quality improving. You might go from literally uh, one third of a meter of water clarity or less to as much as 20 feet. And the, in, in the, the result, the process of that is energizing. People who live around it and get to see it unfolding, it energizes us. And it, it's a huge part of what I love about the work that we're doing.
0: So take us through, um, first off, maybe maybe you could take us through a, a slightly simplified explanation of the technology on a more general level. Because I, I know that you've got a diversity of applications that you can approach with your technologies. Um, and that there's different structural elements, et cetera. But, but I think just, you know, as a start, describe what it is that um, you're using to clean water.
1: Well, the Biohaven brand, the Floating Island, is made of recycled drinking water containers, uh, polyester. So here's a plastic being used to clean up water. It is recycled into a web-like material that ultimately provides what we call a concentrated surface area upon which one of nature's primary life forms, microbes, you know, is essentially limited by. So we provide enough of this surface area and we combine it with circulation. We have the most active agent that occurs in nature's wetlands. That blend of surface area and circulation grows biofilm, which launches the freshwater food web. Okay,
0: so biofilm for, People who don't like immediately imagine what that is. Um, if you have, well, even in your own description, uh, Bruce, you you mentioned like if you've ever had to clean the inside of an aquarium, uh, you, know, you know you know how tenacious and uh, rapidly you know accumulating a biofilm can be. So it's, you know, if you if you pull a stick out of a out of a pool of water, you know, on a walk, and and it's kind of got this. Somewhat slimy substance that that clings to it. That's that's living. That's that's a community of microorganisms which has assembled itself around that object. So and that's what we call a biofilm. So it's literally a film which is biologically active. Um, when we think about something like filtering and cleaning water, and now I think I think we should also like clarify that we're not talking about something you stick in the kitchen sink. You know, this is this is living water. This, these are, you know, for, for streams, ponds, wetlands, type applications. Um, but when we think about that, we normally think about removing any kind of algae or or, or that kind of, that kind of growth. And, and I don't think most people understand that those are actually the organisms which get to work to break down and remove the pollutants. So maybe you could uh, take us a little. Th- further down the microbial spiral for that.
1: You know, biofilm is microbes and their residue, what's left over when they die. The biofilm that you're talking about, imagine trying to cross a mountain stream and being very careful not to slip on the rocks there because go. Of biofilm. There or you can go. Be at, yeah, you can be at sea level and same thing, walking on the beach in the water. Those stones are uh, or the pebbles are coated, every you, it's ubiquitous, you put surface area in water that is not toxic, uh, or at least not highly toxic, and you're gonna develop biofilm, uh, which is sticky. The sticky nature of biofilm means that when you move water across it, the particulates in that water bond to it, they stick to it, and that becomes uh, a form of biofilm the uh, biofilm is the base for this material called periphyton, a technical word. But that periphyton launches the food web, and like you were saying, Eric, inside of it will be a myriad of life forms. You look at it under a microscope, and it's like a jungle that is just alive. Most of those bio, most of those life forms are beneficials. Almost all of them are. It seems that we slip into problems with our water when the water doesn't allow for that diversity to occur because of toxicity agents and even then you can st- if you start with biofilm you can bring it back you can get back into that upward spiral where biodiversity is expanding instead of contracting
0: so it's, ma- it's almost like magic yeah uh, in fact <laughs> you're right like everyday magic i love it um... So you've got, you've got a matrix, which, which is this, this polyester um, kind of sponge, it, it, if you will, or, or, or matrix. It, uh, um, and into that, you're planting. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, exactly. In fact, uh, our embodiment, uh, our uh, form of floating island uh, grows both wetland and terrestrial plants. It's not hydroponic. It's essentially replicating the same way that nature's peat-based, naturally occurring floating islands works. Uh, they've been our model. They've been what we've been using to understand how to do it. Our, our form of biomimicry. And uh, today, you know, we can we can grow everything from cactus to uh, trees and literally everything in between. Uh, the roots of these plants grow into and through the matrix of the island and extend down. And on these roots will be root hairs that add even more surface area to the mix. So islands get better and better. They get more and more effective at that process of cycling the particulates out of water.
0: And, and is there and, an active function of the plant itself, or is it more just providing a habitat for the biofilm?
1: Well, it can actually be both. <clears throat> the for example the, today there are there's a lot of science unfolding around the use of specialized microbes and specialized plants and even specialized fish to hyperaccumulate nutrients that would otherwise cycle into harmful algae blooms or uh, or perhaps monocultures of of uh, invasive wetland plants or variations on that theme. The uh, the idea that we can purposely grow specialized plants that are particularly effective at cleaning up water uh, means that there's gonna be a lot of science, a lot of research going on around this emerging technology over the next few decades.
0: You know what I like? I, we've implied it, but I, I don't think we've actually stated it straightforward. What I really appreciated about reading through the, the information on your website there was, you, you could say it better than I can because I'm just trying to remember it. Um, but you, you said something like, uh, rather than um, cleaning the water to repair the food chain, we're repairing the food chain to clean the water.
1: Exactly, and, and in fact, that was one of the revelations the food web and nature, when when they're allowed to come back, they support that vision of an upward spiral. The um, you know you see this really depicted, you know, in a uh, when, when a waterway is in the process of returning to health, the life forms that live in that waterway, the fish, uh, the amphibians, the uh, invertebrate life, everything explodes. And just the colors on the fish. I'm thinking of uh, uh, a lake we have here at Shepherd called Fish Fry Lake. And it has 11 species of fish in it, uh, warm water species. But the northern yellow perch, they are literally green and gold. And they're they're just, uh, they're beauteous. Uh, they're just wonderful to look at or the black crappie in the silver black blend of uh, uh that that uh they depict uh or the red ear sunfish and the multitude of colors it's like a tropical fish off of an ocean reef the colors are remarkable uh, and you know when you see that happening you're you're really literally seeing micronutrients being uptaken within those biota within those life forms <clears throat> instead of allowed to being allowed to accumulate uh, and stack up and complicate nature's ability to keep those nutrients moving. Um, Everything I'm talking about here, there's a term for it now, it's called water resource recovery. And the concept of doing what we're talking about, energizing nature's food web, and then doing so on a basis that makes commercial sense so that those massive, large problems like Lake Erie or uh, Chesapeake Bay, uh, or uh, you know, there's, there's hundreds of lakes that are eutrophic, or they're too nutrient-rich occurring across Europe. Uh, the, in fact, today there's even a new term called hyper-eutrophic that describes that. When there's too much phosphorus, a nutrient associated with fertilizer, that occurs in the water, yeah, in freshwater systems, that typically will translate into a harmful algae bloom. So and we're, the, seeing, we're seeing the, an epidemic of them unfolding today.
0: That's the blue-green algae that they talk about, right?
1: A blue-green and uh, another form, uh, kind of a crossover life form called cyanobacteria, which is both uh, microbial and uh, a form of
0: phytoplankton.
1: Uh, it's It's a crossover life form, and... You know, you can describe it as either, and be reasonably correct.
0: Uh, yeah, because and you're right. You do. You see it more and more in in terms of warnings about not swimming in certain beaches or lakes, and uh, not being able to use the water out of certain certain bodies, et cetera. Right, and it's, and it's increasing. You know, one th- one thing we haven't touched on uh, directly yet, although we've just started. Um, is that relationship, you know, there's, this is a regenerative kind of practitioner podcast. Um, and for the, for the folks listening and kind of placing where, uh, water cleaning or water pollution fits into that larger picture of uh, being able to regenerate. Um, you know, we, we don't just talk about regenerative agriculture, we don't just talk about soil regeneration, we talk about regenerating entire uh, complexes of systems that work together, uh, including the human community and, and the economic system. So water is central to that. Um, I mean, this couldn't be a more precious technology to be working on at this time when, when climate change itself is threatening, uh, you know, the continued availability of, of water, um, and water is being understood to be important in terms of mitigating climate change. So it's 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 almost like a keystone, you know, a keystone element or a keystone. Uh, if you're looking at biology, we talk about a keystone species that kind of holds the system together. And clean water is something we tend not to appreciate so much until we don't have it.
1: Um, you know Eric, uh, the the linkage between uh, eutrophic or nutrient-rich waterways, but which there are many more today than there were 100 years ago before fertilizer, before you know essentially commercialization of fertilizer product, and the the, the uh, th- these waterways are actually major sources of greenhouse gas. Uh, Just now, over the last few years, being quantified, being actually measured. And the reality is that when a harmful algae bloom occurs and these massive volumes of a monoculture of algae blooms and then dies, uh, as it's digested, it generates some of the most potent forms of greenhouse gas that occur, methane, nitrous oxide. Uh, the, the, uh, when a waterway slips into this massive biodigestion mode, it runs out of dissolved oxygen and that leads to even more problems. In other words, fish kills, stench, the kinds of things that we don't want to happen to the water that we value so greatly.
0: And then, so, we, get, then we get things like the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. Absolutely.
1: They translate into these dead zones. I read an article uh, a couple of years ago now that described 397 marine, you know, ocean-based dead zones in place back then. I imagine that number's gotten greater by now. I saw another uh, article the other day, New York State, here in North America, back in 2011, there were seven reports of harmful algae blooms. In 2018, there were 394. Uh, yeah, clearly, there's, there could be mechanisms associated with the reporting method or something that uh, kept that number lower initially. But ultimately, we're really becoming aware now of harmful algae blooms and their impact, particularly, by the way, on drinking water. Cyanobacteria can generate a toxin that can make drinking water poison under certain circumstances. There's another form of algae called golden algae, and it can do that same thing. It can generate toxins that wipe out a lake literally within a couple of days. And uh, that's happening here in North America in the Southwest uh, as we speak. Um, So we've got serious work to do.
0: That's, you know, nature back that is like really frightening and very depressing at the same time um and isn't it nice to be able to deliver that information with a solution in hand
1: you know eric the there's a reversed what i just said uh, i i'm sure it sounds very doom and gloom but when a waterway transitions and is in transition back, the exact opposite occurs. You can actually have the water clarity, the beauty, the coloration of fish, the um, smell of the fresh water, the, the wonderful scents and uh, multi-diversity that occurs within a waterway that's coming back. You can have that in spades, you can have that multiplied Uh, When you're taking nutrient rich water and helping it cycle back into a food web, so the idea of turning a problem into a solution, the idea of of living around water, which you know humans have done for you know preferentially for millennia more than that, longer than that, millions of years Uh, the reality is that. We can have that again, and maybe even better than before, because of our proclivity towards adding nutrients into the mix. I wanna, I wanna make one other point that kind of relates to this too. Today, there's concern about microplastics in water. Yeah. we're learning, we're learning today, Eric, that the wetland effect, that process of sticky biofilm circulating through it. Means that we can cycle those microparticulates of plastic back into and lock them up, essentially in the form of humus, in the form of uh, floating island uh, mass. And, and let me give you an example. Back in uh, a few years ago, we we did a simple test. We measured the dry weight, uh, the weight of uh, the core of, within an island. Uh, before putting it in the water, and then after 11 weeks, we pulled it out and weighed it again on a dry weight basis. It had gained 72 percent.
0: And was that mostly organic material, or are you saying that a significant amount of that was also microplastics and and minerals that were being uh, hyperaccumulated, or did you break it down?
1: We did, and every waterway will have a different ratio of organic and inorganic particulates in its water they're all unique sure but all of them stick to the biofilm even even a a spongy like material referred to as colloidals which is somewhere between a solid and a liquid sticks to that biofilm and becomes part of the numbers i just quoted you
0: and so then if if you were say 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 you've got a a contained space, say you know a medium-sized fish pond or something like that that you're cleaning up and you've got a couple of these floating islands and they're doing their job. Um, at what point do you physically remove what's been accumulated? Is there some point where you go okay let's pull those islands out and maybe put in a fresh one or, or you know what's that process?
1: i I love that question eric i just love it because when you establish a dynamic wetland effect it simply launches the food web and uh, it will essentially be growing biofilm it will be tying up particulates within the water and all of those continue to move into and through the various tropic levels within a system although there may be five or six or seven specific pathways that you can actually follow and you can see where carbon stacks up becomes maybe uh, essentially a floating island that's growing essentially it's becoming new real estate but the bottom line is that a dynamic food web keeps going however Bear in mind, your, your point is really valid. Humans are a component of the food web, and we need to be in there. We need to be in there harvesting as well. An example here in Fish Fry Lake, 10 kids wanna raise money for their academy, and they organize sponsors that are gonna pay them a dollar a fish. And one Saturday morning, about two years ago now, uh, they come here to Fish Fry Lake and go fishing, Uh, And in the process of, over the course of four hours, they catch uh, 370, I think, well, 334 fish, four kids. Uh, A few years before that, 15 kids, 879 fish. Uh, How many, you know, kids today are missing that opportunity to learn how to fish? Yeah. And this reminds me of citizen science.
0: I wanted to go there, yeah.
1: So today, let's... today we're we're developing an embodiment of island that represents a platform uh, upon which a range of different water cleaning technologies can be demonstrated. Uh, these platforms are sixty five hundred square feet large. They can support buildings, they can support tour groups and uh, yeah. numerous platforms upon or from which science can be accomplished by the people that live in the region so these are are basically
0: these are floating islands that are are just sized to capacity
1: correct yeah yeah and and in fact you're i I should expand on that just a little bit but today we have some nine thousand islands in the water across the world in fact uh we're located in Mexico, Chile, Canada, England, Netherlands, Sweden, China, New Zealand, Australia, Singapore, Ecuador, um, and and probably a couple that I didn't name, but those I know about. But the reality is, our largest island so far is fifty, nearly fifty-two thousand square feet. New Zealand, incredible, Lake Rugarua. Um and. The idea of archipelagos of islands that are both generating solar power by supporting solar panels on them while at the same time cleaning up the lake they're in. That's a classic form of water resource recovery.
0: And, and so superior to the images that I see sometimes of uh, you know, lakes covered with floating solar panels.
1: Right, which use simple buoys instead of that yeah. concentrated wetland effect that nature is teaching us we should be doing. Exactly, uh, the should be thing. Uh, okay, let's put that aside. That nature
0: is showing us we could be doing. We could be doing. So let's come back to the citizen science a little deeper then, uh, in terms of uh, you know <clears throat> opportunities there. I mean, it's great to have the facility, um, and it's great that that uh, you know kids can pull fish out and. and of, you know, not only support their causes, but have a nice day out and learn that they don't come out of a can. Um, but so, what? What other kind of uh, activity do you see? Are, are uh, classrooms collecting information for you know data for you, for instance?
1: Yeah, uh, in fact, um, the the range of classy experiments that um, are being done today that I know about or have been done recently. Uh, here's a good example of one. Um, two, two local high school gals um, were interested in understanding how bisphenol A, BPA, which is a, uh, a toxic compound um, that is worrisome and could bioaccumulate uh, and cause even more trouble into the future. So, what they did is they took a fish bowl and they introduced uh, BPA, bisphenol A, into it um, as a control. And then they did another one with uh, a floating island floating in the, the um, aquarium along with beta-fighting fish. So beta-fighting fish in both tanks, actually. And the BPA impacts these fish. Uh, I think the word that's typically used is it can, it, it can uh, strip them of their sexual drive. Um, there's a, a word for that, but we don't need you know to, to go there. The point is that uh, in tank number one, without the floating island, the fish, which would normally make their way to a mirror and expend gill flare, yeah, because they're seeing an opposite, you know, and, and a competitive fish or or another male that they want to intimidate. Whereas in the tank with the floating island. Um, the, uh, the same beta fighting fish occur in both tanks, but with the presence of BPA, tank number one's experience around these fish gill flaring reduced dramatically. It all essentially disappeared.
0: Yeah, so it's they lose different. they lose the competitive sexual it's, territorial drive. Yeah, their sex drive
1: um, is impacted. Same thing in the tank with the floating island. But two days later, it starts coming back. And three or four days later, the beta-fighting fish are back in full form. Nature's wetland effect, that blend of surface area and circulation, and the microbes, and their ability to biodigest almost anything, is what we're seeing here.
0: We're gonna take a break now. So stay tuned, we'll be right back. Designers of Paradise is made possible in part by Mind & Media. Over the last quarter century, the writers, producers, storytellers, and media specialists at Mind & Media have spearheaded a multitude of engaging and complex communication campaigns. Mind & Media is a proud supporter of the work being done by the wonderful and passionate people of Rasa who are engaged in the creation of a regenerative future for generations to come. Find out more about Mind & Media at mindandmedia.com. That's M-I-N-D-A-N-D-M-E-D-I-A dot com. And now, back to Designers of Paradise and host Eric Van Lennon. Welcome back to Designers of Paradise, where I'm speaking with Bruce Cania from Floating Islands International. It reminds me of some of the studies that I have read around using fungus in in systems to break down things like uh, petroleum products. So it seems like when you when you get down to that microbial level that the ability for the you know for each generation to come up so quickly in some cases in a matter of hours in some cases in a matter of days you know you can have several generations adapting to whatever the nutrient might be and coming up with novel ways to assimilate or, or break it down I mean, we really are a planet ruled by microbes, aren't we? Yeah,
1: your your point about the accelerated evolution that microbes experience compared to, you know, um, humans, for example, is absolutely the case. And that that you know, so microbes will take advantage of a nutrient opportunity. All we have to do is allow them to do that and help them to do that. Every layer. Of biofilm, Eric, incorporates the microbes that need air, microbes that can get by with without what we would consider breathable air, but there's still some oxygen present, and microbes that can subsist without any oxygen. All three classes of microbes occur in every layer of biofilm. What that really means is that whatever we put in front of them if there's any potential at all for it to be biodigested, it will be in the presence of what's called essentially biofilm reactive surface area, a biofilm reactor. Nature's wetland effect is the the most classic example of biofilm reactor in the world. Nature has been doing biofilm reactors far longer than humans have had, uh, you know, I, anything related to science at all?
0: As I keep, could have said
1: that differently,
0: <laughs> <laughs> as I keep saying to me, this is almost like magic i mean not not in an unbelievable way but in a in a in a fascinating uh you know enchanting kind of way. um let's shift gears a little bit and um talk about. One of the things we wanted to talk about was the kind of versatility of these and the different sorts of body of water, for instance, or the different kind of conditions that uh, these might be used to address. Um, And and then another question I have is really about the kinds of clients, because obviously, like, you can't do this unless people ask you to, and there's a way to make a living at it. so maybe combine those two things, like what sorts of, at what level are you engaged? Do city councils come to you? Do private landowners come to you? Um, do NGOs partner with you to to get some of these islands in place and working? How does that happen?
1: Well, Eric, there's some of all of the above there, but um, my, my company is normally Uh, working primarily with communities and we're doing so literally around the world. Uh, We have islands in um, freshwater ponds, lakes, rivers, brackish waterways, uh, as well as marine settings. We have a number of islands that are designed as wave a wave mediation or mitigation systems. They essentially, uh, the energy of a wave will sparge into the island and be reduced and we can protect the levee that's behind this, uh, these strips of islands. These are particularly being used in the Gulf of Mexico right now. And we've been through uh, nine or 10 hurricanes uh, and tornadoes, 48-inch snow dumps, wind storms that that, uh, last for two days and one episode of, of, wind up to 160 miles per hour for a, a day and a half. So the islands are resilient and we, we have a potential to um, work uh, in, in almost any kind of waterway. It's hard to find a waterway that doesn't benefit from more wetland effect, but a target area for us right now, a key area will be drinking water reservoirs. And this vision of blending water resource recovery uh, into the island proposals so that the client actually can see their water quality being improved by a system that pays for itself. Um, That's the model that we need to target, we believe, and we need to promote in advance because uh, that should get us into... The these massive volumes of waterways that need help quicker than simply viewing water improvement as an expense.
0: Right. Um, most of the so-called nature-based technologies uh, that have run numbers have come up substantially cheaper than using, uh, you know, engineering technology or artificial engineering technology. Have you done any kind of comparisons in in the case of the water cleaning? Uh, process.
1: We we have, and I agree with your statement, um, but I also have to acknowledge that when you're dealing with massive point source, you know, or places where pollution originates, you do need some of that concrete and steel just to get to the point where we can uh, begin to polish the water uh, with floating island technology, for example.
0: So are you talking about reservoirs or you know, some way of containing the, the pollution?
1: Well, imagine a, a large urban setting and a wastewater facility that that uh, can actually incorporate within the facility other variations on, other forms of water resource recovery. That would be smart engineering. I see what you're That's saying. Yeah. Absolutely needed, too. But once that water comes out of the system, it might be uh, less than a fraction of one part per million of phosphorus. But we've learned that that can bioaccumulate. And when combined with fertilizer from agriculture or uh, residential lawns for that matter, we have the, the basis, especially in combination with warming conditions, with climate change, we have the basis for massive algae blooms. This and the what I'm just now describing, Eric, is referred to as technically as non-point nutrient-loaded water. Non-point meaning it's spread out.
0: Yeah, it's coming from a lot of sources.
1: Right, and with with human population expanding as it is, uh, there's more and more of this to contend with. So the uh, pretty much any time you look at a watershed, you can predict where the nutrient load is going to occur and ultimately where the harmful algae blooms are going to occur uh, as a result of this accumulation phenomenon that occurs and where people live. So you can look at a watershed and understand uh, how to prevent the nutrients by intercepting them if possible, which is always best, always the least expensive approach. Or after that, you can look at opportunities for water resource recovery where you can turn those nutrients into value in the form of high quality water, uh, wonderful fishing, recreational opportunities on the water that's now super healthy, the ability to be able to swim uh, and feel safe about the the occasional gulp of water that might happen while you're swimming, or letting your pet drink from the edge without being afraid for your pet's safety, like we are today around uh, cyanobacteria and the toxins associated with it and harmful algal blooms.
0: So you get the stacking benefits.
1: Yeah, I, I did I get it that you had something, you had a, another direction occurring at the end of your, your last query. I'm trying to remember what that was.
0: What, what was well, we, we talked a little bit about the, the work of, of opportunities for students, for instance, to conduct citizen science. Um, and where that was going, but, but then we, what I was wondering was about the, actually the commercial um, or revenue generating elements of this. Say, say someone is interested in, in um, developing, say someone, someone's interested in coming to you as an intern, just to give a scenario, um, learning everything they can, and then, going back to Taiwan or nairobi or, or um, you know Amsterdam or wherever, and setting up their own company, possibly in affiliation with yours or maybe not, um, but you know they 've caught the bug so to speak they 've uh, been ev- ev- evangelized in terms of um, you know cleaning water through this sort of technology. Like, is there a future for people to devote themselves to that? In your in your thinking, is there a, a you know an economic possibility? Can someone raise a family and send their kids to college, engaging in this kind of technology?
1: Well, today, Eric, we have a um, an Island Master seminar program. And we've also we also do internships, and we're always looking for. Uh, bright, energized, young people that want to step into the the water industry. Um, From from my crystal ball, I can say that um, it's truly a growth place, growth industry, and this uh, sector associated with nature as model, with biomimicry, I predict will be among the highest growth Rate areas within water uh, uh, and the, the commercial prospects around water. So, uh, if any any uh, anybody who listens to this podcast would like to explore that, they can reach out to me directly here uh, at FloatingIslandInternational.com. Just go to the info, um, uh, and and uh, ultimately we will follow up with you. We're very interested, and in, and not just us. But today we have a half dozen island manufacturers located around the world. Uh, three here in the U.S., one in New Zealand, uh, one in China, and another in the Netherlands. Uh, but um, the these folks uh, are, are also uh, on the lookout for uh, the kind of folks that are that want that are energized by what
0: we're doing here. So they're actively searching, or are they just receptive?
1: It, it, I can't be yeah, I can't be sure of their you know their you know, employability status you know, for you know for all of these different systems. But I can say that uh, we're uh, we're very receptive around that, and the the uh, the vision of uh, growing. This, uh, for example, uh, we've we've had uh, reps and distributors coming on here for the last several years at a, at a wonderful rate. Uh, and we can usually put an island master uh, in connection with a project uh, uh, anywhere in the country right now, based on the network of island masters that we have out there.
0: Yeah, that is so appealing to me. I, I love the idea of becoming an island master. <laughs> <laughs> if I was younger, I'd, be, I'd, I'd probably be knocking on your door for that. Um, so if you're listening to this if you're interested intrigued excited about those possibilities definitely check out the website uh floatingislands.com did i get that right
1: yeah floating island international international
0: floatingislandinternational.com um i've spent a couple of hours on there when i first heard about bruce's work and then i went back on there uh, today in preparation for this call and you know, had no problem spending another couple of hours just reading through the array of projects internationally looking through some of the uh, PDF information from their research. Really fascinating, inspiring uh, material there. Um, and, you know, get in touch with Bruce if you think you might like to be trained as an island master. Um, is that, Bruce, is that a, like a, a weekend, a week? Uh, how, does the, how does that actual training uh, lay out in terms of time commitment?
1: Typically, if we're starting with somebody with experience, uh, it'll be a two and a half day seminar. Okay. Uh, if, the, if the person's a newbie and hasn't been around water yet, then we, we target the internship as a first step.
0: And that internship is typically how long? Uh,
1: usually at least six
0: weeks. Okay. Yeah. In beautiful Montana. True.
1: Right here at uh, the Floating Island International's headquarters, about a half an hour outside of Yellowstone, of, uh, of uh, Billings, Montana, on the Yellowstone River. We can actually, from here, we can see the, the highest mountains in the state of Montana, the Beartooth Pass, the Absarukas. And uh, yeah, well, we're not in the mountains, we, we, at least we get to look at them and think about how much cooler it is up there.
0: And all that lovely water coming down from there. True. Um, is there any? We're we're kind of rounding up now towards towards the end of the the call. Um, what have we not touched on that you think is important for for people to come away with?
1: I guess Eric, you've done a great job of of pulling out the details connected with um, this process of of, of biomimicry. Um, I I think the one area that i'd like to leave people uh, i'd like them to know is that it really is hopeful Uh, we're we're finding that uh, nature is on our side and when we uh, support her just a bit she comes back and uh, ultimately transitions us into that upward spiral uh, where things can get much much better And relatively quickly. Here on Fish Fry Lake, we started the process of transitioning Fish Fry Lake, um, which started off as literally a six and a half acre pond uh, that, when filled for the first time, experienced a hundred percent carpet of filamentous algae and cyanobacteria. Uh, Today, Fish Fry Lake is uh, a premier fishery, maybe the most productive fishery in Montana, as far as I can tell. And that process of transition took about six or seven years. Uh, It took about 5,500 square feet of island, including uh, the most recent embodiment of island called floating stream bed. Uh, But it took that 5,500 square foot of island over six and a half acres and six or seven years to get to the level of water quality that is at today. During that process, we actually tracked the, uh, we measured the inflow phosphorus and the outflow phosphorus. We continue to do that intermittently now. And we know that we can go from eutrophic or hyper very high levels of nutrient inflow to almost non-detect in the outflow. And that's because those nutrients are cycling into preferred life forms to the islands themselves, to massive volumes of fish, to huge volumes of life in pretty much every tropic level as you start from microbes and work your way up through the food web all the way to the top. So uh, the hope that I'm talking about, the optimism that that we feel here, uh, we think that if we can make it commercial, if we can help people, uh, literally figure out, you know, and, and install, integrate systems that, that work and generate enough revenue to more than pay for the project. That on that basis, we can even fix these massive waterways. Uh, I'm thinking of places like the Cuyahoga River in Ohio that actually caught on fire just a few decades ago. Uh, these waterways that lead down into Lake Erie which now today experiences massive algae blooms every year. Uh, and instead of agriculture and communities uh, that are affected fighting, litigating, they can be fixing. They can be supporting nature and making it better. We, we have the tools, we have the science,
0: we're ready. That's a beautiful point to end it on. Thanks so much, Bruce. Um, I will put uh, the links for your website. And uh, if, do you want your email there as well? I can put that also on the, on the page when we publish this. Uh, there will be a few other links there too. So if you're listening to this, make sure you go to the page and um, inform yourself further.
1: Eric, yes. Uh, my my uh, personal email is bruce.kanya at floatingislandinternational.com.
0: And Kanya is K-A-N-I-A.
1: That is correct. Super. You'll note, Eric, that we didn't go floating islands international because we were already long enough.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thanks again. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you, Eric. Bye. Bye-bye now. Thank you for listening to Designers of Paradise. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Join me next week as we bring you another eye-opening interview with the people who are revolutionizing the way we produce our food. Indeed, the people on the front lines of Designing Paradise. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. To learn more, go to www.rasa.ag. That's www.rasa.ag. If you have any ideas you'd like to suggest, such as folks we should be talking to or a specific topic we should cover, hit me up with your ideas on Twitter at Greenheart. That's G-R-E-E-N underscore H-E-A-R-T, Greenheart. We'll see you next week.